Welcome back to Deconstruct. My wish for all of you is that you and yours are happy and healthy. I have social media for this podcast and my new video project about the history of Christian rock called Blood, Sweat, and Sin. You can find both of those on Facebook and Instagram. I hope you'll join and share. Search Deconstruct with Mikey Bridges and Blood, Sweat, and Sin. People are asking me what I mean by having left religion altogether, or what I mean with the title Deconstruct. I mean that as far as I know what Christianity is and what religion is, I cannot align myself with either of those things any longer. At this time in my life, I don't subscribe to any religious beliefs, Christian or otherwise. I don't really know what that ends up looking like. What I do know is that I couldn't keep going on like I was. My deconstruction came from contextual research and study and my travel and experiences with other cultures. I know that's going to disappoint some, confuse some, and probably even piss some people off. I've also had folks that have had the same experience as I have and have written messages of encouragement, and I really appreciate those. Thank you. I understand all those reactions. Even I could never understand how someone could leave Christianity. I just did not get it. Until now. I've already heard all the reasons as to why I am no longer a believer. Things I used to think about people that left Christianity as well. Things like I never really was a Christian, or my church or pastors were bad, or I wasn't rooted in my faith enough, or it was about the law and not the person of Jesus, or I got burned by people in the church, etc., etc. It's a pretty difficult place to be mentally and emotionally. I put everything I was into it. It was my life, everything. My home and my work and my art and my hobby were all the same thing. It was a lifestyle for me, 24-7. I believed it all and was at least a loud voice for the faith. I sought counsel from different pastors, my own pastor at the time, mentors and Christian friends and community. I prayed and I went to church. I did contextual and cultural study of the Bible and the stories I believed and the ones that I had told others. Things started to unravel. My journey unexpectedly led me here to a place where I'm compelled to move on. I I can't stay. My sense of purpose and being was gone. I was zealously committed to evangelism and I spread that message to thousands of people for years and years. And here I am. It's all changed and it's a mind screw. I have no hard feelings against Christianity or my time I spent or the things I created or was involved in. I knew what I was doing when I signed up, both personally and professionally. Musically, I knew that I had chosen to be in Christian bands and to host Christian events. No one twisted my arm or made me. I gladly did it. Some Christians have been jaded by never being able to shake the musical Christian label. That label brings with it unapproving finger wags from the church and the middle finger from the secular music world. There were quite a few pissed off at the Christian music industry or promoters or labels. Some left Christianity as a result. Having seen that side, I can see why people left, but it isn't why I have. Personally, I know people fail people. I myself have failed many. I know that people are people, and even though they may be a Christian or a pastor or leader, 
that they are not God or Jesus or the Bible. And early on, I stopped expecting them to act any different than anyone else. We're humans. I've been burned so many times, I smell like a day after campfire. I've been through some really toxic and devastating situations with the church and leaders and people in it. Even in my own professional Christian life, I've been stabbed in the back, front, kicked, cut, beat up, burned, and left to die. That never reflected on God to me. I was never jaded because of the way I was treated by some people. If it were a reason to leave the church for me, I would have left a very, very long time ago. I understand how important faith and spirituality are to some. I respect that and I have no issue with anyone believing what they want to. That's a personal thing each of us decides for ourselves. At this time in my life, I'm wanting to listen without an agenda, just to hear the experiences of others, no matter race, religion, sexuality, any of that. I want to spend the time I have left on this planet listening for the joy of it. Not so when the conversation gets to me, I can let whoever I'm talking to know what they're missing in their life or, or even to get to know them a bit so I can tell them later. Having lost everything I knew put me in the scariest place I'd ever been in my life. But that also changed me. I've found life to be more precious than ever before and to see the good in things even more. I look back on all of what I've been involved with with a great deal of joy and I hope to continue to do even more with my life now with a new perspective. And I hope that explained some of that. Message me if it didn't. It was the beginning of the 90s in Portland, Oregon, and I was very busy in my professional life. What I mean by that is I had a regular job, mainly construction or at UPS or whatever I could pick up, and was also working hard at trying to create a company in Christian music. I'd already run a club and had a decently popular band, but I wanted more. I liked management, helping other bands, putting shows together, recording. I was out to make a living doing all that by being a promoter as well as being in a band, which never happened by the way, but I was at least going to be surrounded by it. In my own personal life, more than anything I could have ever done, achieved, or hoped for, I found one of the greatest loves of my life during that time. I had my first daughter, Shade, who absolutely captivated me. I was beyond excited to have her in my life. I had always wanted to be a dad, so I had literally been waiting for her. I had no idea how deeply and overwhelming my love for her would be. It was and is everything I hoped and more. I'm a very proud father. And just when I thought that my heart would burst because of this little ray of sunshine I was holding, her sister Veronica showed up and I didn't think I could love anyone or anything else like I did shade. I was wrong. My two girls have been the greatest accomplishment of my life. I'm still over the moon for them. I know you're not listening to this girls because dad's boring, but I love you more than you could possibly imagine. I was in full steam on my musical path. I had opened the connection and that went away and now was doing shows wherever somebody would let me. I had been in a decently popular local band called the Gecko Monks, 
but turned a musical corner and started a new band called Sometime Sunday. The Gecko Monks did pretty well. We played a lot and had some great times, but I was itching to sing and to be in front. I had been playing bass and singing background, so as the Gecko Monks were ending, I decided to start a band that I could sing for, and that was much harder rock and a bit more angry, I guess. Definitely reflective of the music that was happening at the time. Grungy for sure. (laughs) The Gecko Monks did one very lo-fi recording and put it all together with the help of a small label from Portland called Free Rain Records. Though we did a lot of it wrong, I was excited because I had been a part of making a record. From the CD manufacturing to the artwork and the songs, I loved it all. I wanted to do more. Sometimes Sunday got out there pretty quick. Each of the guys had their own projects and had been in bands before, so none of us were strangers in our little scene. Kevin, our guitar player, was in Godspeed and Empty Tomb. Matt, or Zip, our bass player, was in a band called The Middlemen and something else too, I can't remember. We had two drummers. Bobby Jean-Pierre was in a band called Permanent House Guest, and Jake was in Wide-Eyed Wonder and something else too, I can't remember. I was in Gecko Monks and was doing pretty well there. Eric Whittington would join us as a second guitar player later on. So we had all been around each other and seen each other play. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but we all ended up forming a band. None of us knew then, but that band allowed me and the other guys to have a ton of really fun experiences. Some not so fun, but it was a blast. I'll get back to that in a bit. I had been trying to figure out how to have my own club again and was doing shows here and there at various churches, halls, or event spaces, any place that would let me. And I kept working on music and playing in the band. There was an old neighborhood Baptist church on 64th in Southeast Portland, attended by a very nice couple, Bill and Jeannie Sherman. Bill and Jeannie were kind of a rocker couple that were in a band, but also did concerts at different places in Portland and Vancouver. They were in a 70s style rock band called Light Rail, and they also promoted shows around Portland for the love of helping the next generation of Christian artists and creatives to grow and have a place to go. They genuinely wanted to help both bands and fans, and they did that. In fact, I met my future band members at their shows. Bill and Jeannie attended the old neighborhood church and started doing concerts there. They invited me to come and take a look at the space to see if I would do shows there, as they had attended The Connection and saw what I did there. The church building was old, but not in the cool way. Stained glass and wood pews, but it was deteriorating from the lack of a congregation, really. (laughs) No money, no help. The building could fit well over 100 people in the main sanctuary on the main floor, but there were less than 20 regulars attending the church. Most of them were at least 75 years old. The congregation was literally dying. Literally. The pastors were younger and were basically burying the people that had gone there their entire lives. There was no new influx of people, energy, youth, or color. It was just dying. The building wasn't in great shape, but it had offices and a lot of space on the main floor. And then downstairs in the basement, there was this big 5,000 square foot rectangle. 
<laughs> a big room with a couple of classrooms and dingy office space in it as well. Nothing spectacular. Just an ugly rectangle with no windows. Kind of creepy. But the space was big and open, and it was a great place for shows. The building was way too big for this tiny elderly congregation to be able to financially maintain, so they had a preschool at the church to make ends meet. This wasn't working out very well because the preschool was for low-income families and the need was great. Unfortunately, it just couldn't keep up either. The school used the large room and the classrooms in the basement through the week, but all of that space was available on the weekends. So I was asked to come in and do concerts when the preschoolers weren't there. I would have control over how it was run, and the only thing that I had to do was work it out with the administrator of the preschool and give the church a percentage of the money from concerts, if there was any. Do you see how this is so removed from, you know, like normal music of just not Christian music? This Non-religious people, I don't think, deal with this kind of stuff. I'm trying to create a hard rock club in the basement of a church that should be leveled, and I'm competing with a Christian low-income preschool. But that's what I had. Right before putting the new club together, I met a guy named Todd Fatal that had a lot of ideas, energy, and a different vision of things. Mind you, there were so many people that helped to get this community to this point. Erin Brockway Collins was an integral part of this new growing scene. She was a singer and was in a few bands, had relationships with all the other bands and the people that were coming to the shows. And she went on to help set up more shows with us. She helped do Tom Fest, managed tours, and really was the glue for all of us. Even now, she and Bradley Swanson from Pep Squad run The Corral on Spin Cycle, an archive of the 90s scene, and all of our bands from that time from Portland. And you can find that on Bandcamp. Look up The Corral on Spin Cycle. Most of the stuff I talk about on this podcast musically can be found there. Roy Fisher was a sound engineer and a band member that was crucial in growing this young scene. Without him, I would have never been able to do what I did. From sound systems to electrical, he was the man. Still is. Craig and Sherry Smith were vitally important to the scene and what would come for us next. Without them, we wouldn't have had Tom Fest and Stevenson and maybe no festival at all. John Nissen was an illustrator that helped us with graphic designs for the club and Tom Fest, and he would go on to create the tooth and nail logo and the MXPX Poconaccia punk character and so many more things. Brady Wilson was our internet guy and hosted everything so that we could have a presence online. And he still does that even today. There are so many more that helped us get things going and to continue on. The list is a mile long to all of you. You know who you are. It would take me hours and hours to go through it. I love you guys. Thank you so much. In particular, though, <laughs> was this guy named Todd Fatal. This guy comes out of nowhere to help with the shows and building out the new club. He had been around music and concerts in Portland, but not around. I hadn't seen him. I mean, he wasn't around me. He was downtown, particularly the X-Ray Cafe downtown on Burnside. Trey, one of the owners, the man behind Voodoo Donuts. Todd was a creative, and he was a musician in a couple of bands at the time, Garbage Shoot Flyboys and Sapo. Todd would go on to help me not only with the club, but Tom Fest, Tim Fest. We toured together. 
we were bandmates. We became band our label mates on organic records. And he went on to run several of his own clubs, including the famous Meow Meow in lower Southeast Portland. Uh, he was involved in several other festivals, toured to Europe and back, put out records with Agents of Future and The Beauty, a ton of stuff. We balance things out early on. He's the feeler and I'm the thinker. I'm logistics. I'm, I like the puzzle. I love all the moving parts and producing an event for you, an experience for you, and hopefully soon a TV show for you, Blood, Sweat, and Sin. Please look that up. I am about the details and getting it all put together so it runs as smooth as it can with the least amount of problems it can. I like systems and organization and schedules and you know hiring the crew and all that. I want to fix everything. <laughs> but with that comes my weakness. I don't have the heart of an artist. I was never a great musician. I'm not that much of an art guy. I'm not a feeler. I will never get an award for being empathetic. I'm numbers and calculations and schedules and paper towels and toilet paper. Todd was my contrast, someone who really understood music and art and what it invoked in people. He understood the heart of it all. He really knew how to help others to engage and enjoy creating without feeling stupid or ashamed of trying to express themselves. I'm not that guy. But between us, we could cover a lot of ground. Let me put this all in perspective, though. I'm fucking 25 years old at the time. Like, I really don't know what the hell I'm doing at all. I had no experience. I didn't have anyone to learn from. So I just had to figure all of this stuff out. I was just determined to be surrounded by Christian music. The shows I did at the church were pulling in a lot of kids, more action than the old church building had seen in a very long time. I wanted to put something in more permanent as we were having to set up and tear down every week and it was terrible. Through some negotiation, we got the okay to build a stage and paint stuff and do some other modifications. Mind you, we had no money, so I had to go beg for things to make this a club. I used discarded wood from dumpsters at construction sites that was used for concrete molds and foundations, throwaways. We bought oops paint and mixed it all together to make black. Oops paint is that mistake paint or paint that a customer never picks up. It was heavily discounted or given away for free if you begged. So you could take several different cans of oops paint and make black. We built a huge stage and drum riser, painted the back wall and ceiling and tried to make everything look cool. Trying to make this huge dank basement look and feel like a cool live music venue was not an easy thing to do. We were determined to make this a place where the music scene in general would know that we were doing great shows consistently every weekend so they could have a home base. After a creative session and sheets of paper with names on it, we decided on the name The Push, just like the way it looked and sounded. I'm happy to say that that little club in the basement of a dying neighborhood Baptist church in the middle of Southeast Portland became grand central for what we, as a scene, a city, and a community would go on to do. The push quickly became a place to see new bands and touring bands that would come through, a place to hang out with like-minded people for the time. 
a place where new bands would be incubated and new ways of expression were not just accepted, but encouraged. More than just a band, a club, or a music scene, we were becoming a community of people. In the basement, we fixed up one of the smaller rooms to be a place for people to relax during a show or to see someone play between bands. Todd called it the Turbo Cat Lounge. The lounge was host to acoustic acts, singer-songwriters, spoken word, and all things weird and wonderful. We had a huge collection of Atari 2600 games, a stage, couches, thrift store furniture, and weird carpet, not just on the floor, but the walls as well. We added a snack bar, a retail shop where we would sell band merchandise, and we cleaned out a couple of rooms to create a mini thrift store and food pantry. At the push shows, you could get a dollar off or two with a can of food, and people also kept bringing us clothes and blankets. We ended up having a full pantry of food and a pile of clothes to help people that couldn't afford it, including ourselves at times. The push really took off. The local music scene was growing, and our sister scene in Seattle was growing as well. Seattle's only two hours from Portland, so lots of bands from Seattle came to play the push, and the bands that would call the push home would frequently drive up to Seattle and play there as well. Touring bands would come through, and the cool thing was that if our scene didn't know them, then one of our local popular bands would play with them so that there was an audience for them. We really helped each other out that way back then. The shows were going well, and we had a lot of bands come through. More and more people found out about the push and started coming. Remember that this was in a basement, so when you get a few hundred people in a dank room, it gets hot. And then it gets sweaty. Try as we might to move air through there, the walls at the push would be wet at most shows. It was gross. Sweaty walls. Our local bands were getting more popular and signing to labels, and new bands were forming a scene by the minute. The Clergy was our first big signing of a band from our scene. They put out RUMI on broken records. My mission as a Christian was still as important as ever for me. The church part of things was still a focus. Though we weren't involved in the small older congregation that met in the sanctuary upstairs, we did our own (coughs) church. (laughs) We had so many people coming to the shows that we started two separate meetings. By meetings, I mean a light Bible study and hangout time, and also another one that was a little more intense Bible study if somebody wanted to get a little deeper. Our Bible study quickly grew and got bigger than the original church congregation that was there before me, and now the church was being used regularly by a bunch of young people, and not just at the concerts I was doing. People knew that you could go any Friday or Saturday and see a great show in a great setting, and then you could come back on Sunday and hang out, listen to a short talk, discuss things with each other. It was called The Gathering, and it involved into a church, basically, with no leader. That was okay with me because I never lost sight of my life mission. I still wanted to show everyone that Jesus and Christians were cool and can have fun too and have cool rock clubs. I wanted people to be drawn to God because of what we were doing. All that I was doing was for the purpose of giving the scene a safe Christian home. I wanted to showcase Christian bands in the hopes that kids that were coming would start going to Bible study with us or church and to eventually accept Jesus as their savior. We wanted to see people become Christians just as much as we wanted them to come to the shows. And it was happening. 
from 92 to 95 were a whirlwind. I, I can't keep all of it straight. I was married to somebody I had only dated a few weeks. I had one going on two kids. There was the club and our meetings at the club. There was my band playing shows. I was also producing a little fanzine for our scene. I also moved a few times during that time, always landing in a house that had space to make a band practice room. Each of those houses inevitably became a host to a myriad of bands in our local scene. One house had over five bands that would use it to practice. And then, of course, band members would create other bands with other band members and lots of band whoring in those days. One person could be in several bands, and of course, they need a place of practice. I would build these practice rooms so that we wouldn't bother the neighbors, and that's not an easy task. You can't just put up some sound foam and be good. I worked for a construction guy for a long time, so I knew that to kill sound, I needed to build them like a studio. One of my musician roommates, Matthew Wright from the Voodoo Dolls, was a construction guy as well, so we figured out how to kill the sound and be able to play ultra loud. Sometimes Sunday rehearsed, played, and recorded at stupid levels. We liked it very, very loud for some reason. The solution to not getting shut down by the cops was that I would float the walls and floors when I could. Studios are usually built with floating walls and floors. This means that you build a room and then you basically build another one inside it so the walls don't touch. The airspace in between them prevents the vibrations getting out. Those vibrations obviously become sound and you can hear it and feel it outside of the house. We could not afford to buy lumber and materials to build these things. So I built walls out of pallets and I stuffed them with Levi jeans. Why pallets? Because they're free and we couldn't afford wood. You can cut them up and nail them together to form walls and floors easy. Why Levi's? I worked for my entrepreneurial dad in several of his businesses. One of the jobs I did while I was trying to play music and run a club was to work in his warehouse and manage a route for buying Levi's from the public and from thrift stores. My stepdad's brother had traveled overseas regularly and whenever he did, people wanted to buy his Levi's, the ones he was wearing. So he would bring several pairs of Levi's with him whenever he traveled. He and my dad created a business out of it. They set up travel trailers that were usually painted bright yellow with signs on them that said, Wanted, use Levi's, we'll pay up to $15 a pair, Saturday, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. We would rent spaces and parking lots that would be seen from a major road or highway, and we would set up several locations in various cities across the United States. I think we had around 12 in Portland. I was a buyer and managing the locations in Portland. People lined up and were more than happy to get rid of what they had. I never saw anything like it. We were getting mountains of jeans and people were stoked. The public was getting paid for the stuff that would normally go to Goodwill or the trash. Like the old saying goes, one non-binary transgender women man's trash is another non-binary transgender women man's treasure. My dad and his brother had multiple locations in several cities and processing warehouses in two, one of them in Oregon, where I worked going through thousands of pairs of jeans a week. Levi's were very hard to get in Europe at the time, in any condition. And the weird thing was that different countries wanted them in different conditions. 
One country wanted them with holes, one without. One wanted them dyed, faded, some perfectly dark. We did whatever the customer wanted. Dyed them, stonewashed them, bleached them, shot holes in them, and stitched some. It was wild. Buyers from other countries would fly in, they would pick their lot, and we'd load up the truck and have it shipped on over. In the warehouse, we organized and categorized every kind of Levi and other denim jeans that we got from the public. I learned more than I could ever have thought about Levi's. We had around 25 to 30 different categories of jeans that we would organize, process, and then send off to different countries. My two best moments were when I found $200 in a pair of jeans that I was sorting. It was common to find money here and there, you know, one or a five, but 200 bucks. And the bills were so bleached that I actually had to send them into a mint to get them authenticated. <laughs> the second was in a thrift store where I found some, what they call Big E Redline leather tag Levi's in pristine condition. Basically some of the first denim Levi's to be sold, but in perfect condition as if someone had put them away in a closet somewhere. A great find back then. We had a throwaway pile at the warehouse, jeans that couldn't be sold or fixed. Working in a warehouse full of Levi's, I noticed how much they absorbed sound. Perfect for a band room. To make a cheap but highly effective band room, we would go on a pirate pallet run and get as many wood pallets as possible and use those to build a room inside whatever room was in the house that we wanted to practice in. Usually the basement, as some of Portland's basements are unfinished, meaning dirt, floors, and walls. So we would use the pallets for floors and walls. I would build out a box inside the space using pallets and fill in the pallets with rolled up jeans. Some of the best sound absorption, and it cost me nothing. We would use scrap sheetrock and then mud and tape to finish it off. Then we'd go on a hunt for carpet pad and carpet to be used for more sound deadening inside the room. It rains basically every day in Portland for 10 months out of the year. So when you're hunting for used carpet and pad and dumpsters behind carpet installer warehouses, you have a very short window of opportunity. There were a couple of great carpet joints that had a lot of installers that would bring back used carpet and pad from the jobs that they did that day. So we'd go and take the good stuff from those dumpsters and line the walls with it. We tried our best not to get the ones with, you know, cat pee and dog pee stains, but we could never afford getting new stuff. So we got what we got. Imagine the people doing renovations in those houses after we were there, tearing open a wall and seeing <laughs> hundreds of pairs of Levi's. That's weird. In all of the houses I have been a part of in Portland, we always had a great practice space. Good times. With the band Sometime Sunday, I had found a new musical home with the guys and we were gaining some popularity locally. I had gone through a dramatic change in musical style. The Gecko Monks were kind of college alt-rock, driven with poetic lyrics. I always felt like I was trying so hard to hide my feelings and be vague and flowery with my words, which is not me at all. It came out convoluted, forced. I'm not good at it at all. Our music wasn't angsty. It didn't have the punch that I was looking for then. I wanted a much harder band, raw and honest, stripped down, naked and angry. <laughs> I still did the flowery thing too much, but you know, oh well. My lyrics reflected what I was going through at the time. Guilt, shame, acceptance, anger, faith, redemption, all of that stuff. 
I wore it on my sleeve in this band and I let it out there. Here's a little sample of the transition. This is the Gecko Monks and then sometime Sunday after that. The Gecko Monks song has a wind track on it. Yes, wind. I don't know why, but that's wind you're hearing. transitioned into this. Uh, this may be a little bit loud. to do another record because of the buzz I felt after putting out the Gecko Monks record. My friend Rich Jensen, who was my first roommate in Portland, had taken over the first club I had opened called The Connection. But when that ended, he wanted to put on more shows, manage, and be an artist. 
we both had a similar attitude toward being involved in and around music, and we were both Christians. We had done shows together, a local zine, and he helped my first band, Gecko Monks, with booking shows and making some connections for us. Rich continued to help me with Sometime Sunday. Cassettes and vinyl were still doing well, and CDs had just really taken off. For a young band, it was prohibitively expensive to make a CD sometimes. I remember the local studio I worked with in Portland called Northstar made their bread and butter with loops and sound effects and instrument sounds. They bought one of the first writable CD burner machines and it was $15,000. I still have a master from those days. Now you can burn one from your laptop or maybe that's old now. We don't even do that anymore. Man, that's gone already. That was fast. Crazy. Rich helped me work on what we considered a very professional full-color promo pack that came in a purple folder with the band's logo embossed on it. Not just a sticker, it was embossed. Back then, color copies were ridiculously expensive, and having a logo embossed on a folder was over-the-top. Over-the-top was good with me as I wanted to stand out as much as possible in hopes of getting signed or making another record. But we needed a demo tape. When I was in Gecko Monks, I got to know a guy that would really help and influence a great deal in my life, Billy Power. Billy was living in Seattle and was doing the same types of things as I wanted to do. He was much more professional and put together than me. Billy was in bands and put together shows, and he also had a label called Fearless Donkey Records. He put out a compilation of bands from Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Billy brought us all together and showcased us all as a Northwest music scene. It was called Songs from the Rain Factory, and it included tracks from a lot of bands that would go on to be signed and do a lot of things. The compilation had Gloria, which became Soul Food 76, and another band, I think, Poor Old Lou, Don't Know, Ashes to Ashes, The Clergy, Empty Tomb, and Gecko Monks. You can find that on Bandcamp. Search The Corral on SpinCycle. Thank you, Aaron and Bradley. The site's free, but if you do have a buck or two, please donate to Aaron and Bradley. I'm not paid to say that, (laughs) but please help them out. Billy grouped us together as a Northwest scene, not a Portland or Seattle or BC scene, which I think really helped the relationships between us all. I had a sense of pride being on that and representing my little area. I was stoked to be on that thing. Billy had been in a band that I knew about way back in the 80s called Point Blank, an early on Christian punk band before that was a normal thing or a cool thing. He would go on to form the band Blenderhead and run Tooth and Nail Records. He also just put out another record with Chris Weibel from Everdown, and he created a photo book, and he's back in Nashville, and he's, yeah, he's going for it. Back in the day, he was in Ashes to Ashes, who played a very memorable show at the Tacoma Dome in Tacoma, Washington. It was with Scattered Few and Rocks in Pink Cement, which I believe was Brian Gray from The Blamed. Killer show. Billy was the guy in Seattle. Billy knew about Sometime Sunday and that the Gecko Monks had stopped playing, so he talked about putting out a demo on his Fearless Donkey Records. Sometime Sunday's first release called Pain. It was a cassette-only release. I don't know why we didn't put it out on CD. I can't remember. Billy was really the reason that we grew. He helped us not only with recording and making all that happen, but also getting us shows and going out with us to shows. 
<laughs> he reminded me the other day in a message that he was once driving us in the band van from Portland to a show, I think maybe down in Fresno, California. On the way back, I woke up in the back and looked out to see that we were in the forest, like the wrong forest for sure. Definitely not where we were supposed to be. This was well before GPS and cell phones. We used maps and Thomas guides and triptychs from AAA. There's a junction in Sacramento that you can easily get mixed up on. And instead of continuing north up the I-5 to Portland, we went east for uh, quite a while. I think it was hours. <laughs> Whoops. Billy, you changed my life. I love you. Thank you so much. Rich Jensen, my old roommate, helped me put together that full-color promo pack and purple folder, and we needed something to stick out about the demo cassette. Something eye-catching and different. I wanted to make it look like we were more professional than we were. <laughs> so we went for the purple-colored cassette and a full-color insert. Colored cassettes were rare then, so it stood out. Billy set us up to record seven songs in this little recording studio in Newburgh, Oregon. During the mixing process, I met Dean Baskerville, who had become a very sought-after engineer, very involved in our Christian music scene, and involved in a lot of my future records and bands. The recording process was good, and we were excited to get it done. As soon as we got that demo from the manufacturer, we started sending out the professional promo packs with purple cassettes and purple folders. <laughs> One of the places we sent our stuff to was the new band showcase at Cornerstone Festival. Cornerstone Festival is a huge Christian music festival in Illinois. The Mecca for Christian alternative rock. The Coachella of Christian festivals. To get on that stage in Illinois all the way from Portland would be a miracle. They only had 12 slots on that showcase. Labels and press would be there. Other big name bands were checking out new bands there. And there were big crowds listening to the new bands coming up. Year after year, that showcase churned out newly signed bands like a machine. It was a long shot to say the least as we were from so far away and no one knew us. And there were so many good bands trying for the slots. I sent off my purple demo cassette and promo pack in my purple folder in hopes of catching the eye of the person that picked the bands for that stage. Hundreds of bands entered. I remember waiting for the word if we had made it or not. And we did. <laughs> we won a spot on the showcase stage. So we traveled from Oregon all the way to Illinois and played the new band showcase at Cornerstone Festival. Cornerstone Festival's band lineup was always legendary and multi-generational. All of the big Christian alternative and rock bands of the time played there. Everyone. The Prayer Chain was a very popular band whose star was rising at that time. They were on the roster and I was a huge fan. I'd seen them many times all around Southern California and they were doing what I dreamed of doing. They played great shows, but I remember specifically seeing them play at Knott's Berry Farm, an amusement park down here in Southern California, at one of the Christian rock nights, and Andy Prickett up there on his guitar ripping it up with his long bangs and the meticulous way that he played that guitar, his wah technique and the tones. Oh man, it was fantastic. I was stoked that I was going to see them play at the festival. 
The festival grounds was about 20 to 25 minutes out from the nearest town for groceries and stuff. So we would have to go in and get things from time to time like everyone else, including the bands. We met the nice guys from Dig Jesus in the parking lot there in the grocery store. And I saw the guys from the prayer chain walk into a movie theater to see a movie. So in the South, you can buy a not two liter, but a three liter bottle of this Mountain Dew type drink called Hee Haw. And we thought that was really funny. So I bought a three liter bottle of that and I left it for the guys from the prayer chain with a note and a demo asking them to come see us play. And it worked. (laughs) The guitar player from the prayer chain showed up to the showcase. We played in 90 degree heat with lights and a huge tent, but we put it all out there. It was especially important to me. We had made up four different flyers for our show and had handed them out to everyone we possibly could. That helped us too. The crowd was big and seemed to like it. After the show, I was approached by Andy, who expressed interest in producing a record with us. Holy shit, I was so starstruck. It was Andy from the prayer chain, not Sperry Farm, talking to me. Oh, just that was intimidating enough. Him wanting to be involved was over the top. Brandon Ebel was also there, and he was looking for bands for a new Christian alternative label he was creating. There was no Tooth and Nail Records quite yet. After playing that showcase, I had this fantasy of being approached by someone from the big Christian alternative music labels, like BAI or Broken Frontline, Glasshouse, Blonde Vinyl, you know, somebody like that. I had no idea who Brandon was, but... I was a big fan of Mike Knott. Brandon said he wanted to do a record with us, and we said yes right away because, you know, we were young, and we got to record a record for real this time. We didn't know anything about what signing really meant, but the chance to record and for Andy to be involved was insane. I don't know that the other guys in the band held the same reverence for Christian rock that I did, but... Growing up down in Southern California and watching these bands get big, I couldn't help but to feel like I was kind of becoming one of them now, or would be. And as a super fanboy about Christian alternative music, I was going to get to do that in the place where it all started for me. I wore out Christian alternative records from the 80s, most of the bands coming from Orange County, California, and here I was about to come full circle. Such great times. Andy Prickett. Man, I need to call that guy and interview him. I was at that 25-year anniversary show that the prayer chain put on in both Southern California and Nashville, and he looked exactly the same. Fucking rock star, man. He was very influential in my musical life. I was reminded of how much I got to do because of him when I was doing my research. Because of meeting and befriending Andy at Cornerstone that year, he would go on to produce several records of mine and take us on tour with them. I met the guys from Mortal because of that, who became Full Zandura, Gyro, and Jerome. I met Joey Mack and Joey Marciano. And I got to tour with them and the prayer chain. All of them went on to do much more. What a weird mix. Because of touring with Mortal, Gyro would later produce one of my other band's records. 
Being on the bill with Mortal and the prayer chain was absolutely incredible. The shows were great and everybody got along. It was really fantastic. We owed a lot to those other bands. They helped us a great deal when there wasn't a lot of help to be had. Because of Andy and touring with the prayer chain, I also got to know their manager, Frank Tate. Frank had a Christian club called The Scream in the Bay Area of California, Concord. And he also had a label called Five Minute Walk Records. After meeting Frank because of Andy, I worked for him at the label and at his club. I was able to get my hometown friend's band Black Eyed Siva signed to the label, and they went on to become Model Engine, made a few records, and traveled the world. Frank also let me have a sub-label, Push the Label, or Push Records after the club in Portland. Push Records put out a compilation called Bronze Bondi, and also the Twin Sister record, which was a Star Wars tribute band, and another Tom Fest compilation, I think. Twin Sister also got to tour because of that as well. Tim Tabor is the singer of the prayer chain, and because of touring and our relationship, we later did Tom Fest in Anaheim where Mike Knott broke the boat. And if you know what I'm talking about, then you know what I'm talking about. Lisa West was a big part of that as well. Lisa was a big promoter and manager of bands like The Violet Burning for a long time, and she's married to Sam West, drummer for Stavesaker and Scattered Few. And the list goes on and on. Thank you, Andy, for picking up my note and the three-liter bottle of hee-haw green carbonated drink and showing up to our show at Cornerstone. It changed my life, and I got to experience so many cool things and meet a ton of great people. Thanks for the great sounds, recording, music lessons, and the fun. Billy, Andy, and now Brandon changed so much for me. Looking back at all this, this weird spiderweb of connections, I see so many interesting characters that entered and changed the course of my life. I am really grateful. So here comes Brandon Ebel. He had worked at another Christian label and was transitioning into creating his own label. Something new with Mike Knott we had heard. I don't know whatever happened to that, but by the time we signed, it was just Brandon who was from the Portland area and the name of the label was Tooth & Nail Records. We quickly got to it. Brandon had us travel down to California to record at the Green Room. The Green Room was Gene Eugene from Adam Again's recording studio in a track house in Orange County. You have to understand that I'm peeing myself at this point. As a super fan of this Christian alternative music culture, I was starting to be on the other side of it. I was now one of the bands that maybe somebody would listen to. Someone like me who will read the liner notes and buy a shirt and know the people's names in the band. My teenage years were spent worshiping these bands, and here I was about to be a part of it. The center of my musical universe through high school was right around the corner of where I was recording. I'm in a studio owned by a legend in my eyes. Some of my heroes know me by name. It was absolutely fantastic. We showed up at the green room, and there was a traffic jam there. A new signed band to Tooth & Nail called The Blamed was still in the studio finishing up their recording, and we were up next. We had some overlap, and you could not fit any more people or any more gear in that house, so we decided that we would leave everything in the van, and I would sleep in the van in the driveway in case anyone tried to break in and steal our gear. 
we were all tired from driving from Oregon. So the guys found some spot in the house and I made a little area in our van and went to sleep. January 17th, 1994, 4.30 a.m. It's still dark outside. I'm sleeping. The van starts moving. I wake up kind of, and I saw someone outside, a shadow. And then the van shook again. There's somebody out there that's shaking the van to see if an alarm will go off. Somebody's going to break in here right now. I mean, people knew that bands came there all the time. They knew it was a studio. So I yelled, hey, who is it? Nothing. I laid back down and just a second later, the van shook again, this time a lot. And I freaked out. I was going to jump out of this van and scare this robber and I'm going to get stabbed or killed for sure. I know it. But I yelled and jumped out of the van and nothing no one was there (laughs) driving from oregon was tiring i dreamed it so i went back to the van and i went back to sleep it was a terrible dream i woke up the next morning and i got out when i woke up with a clear mind i realized it was a practical joke and it was my band members screwing with me it probably wasn't a dream it was really common our band to just screw with each other I went in the house to look for them and everyone was around the TV. What I experienced in the driveway of the green room that night was the Northridge earthquake, which caused major damage down here in Southern California. That was a very crazy night. (laughs) We started recording that day. Mark Rodriguez, Andy Prickett and Gene tracked it all. And then we brought it up to Oregon to finish. Back in Oregon, it was back to working and also trying to be in a band, run a club, and be a dad and husband. I did my best to balance, but I also wanted to do more in Christian music. I was making connections, meeting new bands, playing with label mates, and I had experienced Cornerstone Festival. As a musician in a band that was playing a lot, my experiences with how other promoters did their shows and events shaped the way I wanted to do mine. I wanted to run a place that both the audience and the bands wanted to be. I did my best to do that with the clubs I built. And now I had a dream to do that on a bigger scale. I wanted to do a Christian music festival. (laughs) I'll talk about that next time on Deconstruct with Mikey Bridges. You can check out my new video project called Blood, Sweat, and Sin the history of Christian rock on my website, M-I-K-E-E-Bridges.com. That's MikeyBridges.com. I hope you and yours are all happy and healthy. Cheers from Southern California.